0: Today, 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 with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining me on today with Jeff Fines. My name is Aaron, one of the members on the team here at One and All Media, and as we near the end of our series titled "The Story," it's time to take a look at what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And in this message, Pastor Jeff is looking at what we can learn from Jesus' final hours before his crucifixion. This is Today with Jeff Vines.
1: When Jesus came uh, to earth, there's a real sense in which heaven and earth did collide. And he came to reveal to us that that place we know down deep inside is real. He came to reveal to us what that place was like. There's not a person in this room, no matter what background you're from, uh, no matter where you were born, no matter where you grew up, there's not one person in the room that doesn't know somewhere down deep inside that there's something beyond this. There's something more. That's why you're so disheartened when relationships break up. There's something about you inside that knows it shouldn't be this way. It should be where relationships last. There's something inside you that knows that the feeling of self-worth and significance and self-esteem that it shouldn't be so volatile. It shouldn't be so fragile. There's something inside of every single one of us that knows this is not the way it ought to be. If we thought this was the way it ought to be, we wouldn't be so disheartened. We'd just be happy with what we have. But there's something down deep inside of everyone, Christian, non-Christian, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, there's something inside you that knows there's a yearning inside you for something else. I often put it like this, that the reason you yearn for water is because water is real. The reason you yearn for food is because food is real. And the reason you yearn for another place is because another place is real. You long for something in the human heart of something that actually exists. And when Jesus came down, you know what he came to do? He came to show us that the ideal we know is true has become real. And he gave us a glimpse of what one day will be. So what does he do? I mean, he starts healing people. I mean, Jesus was incredibly compassionate. We don't have Jewish polemic resources that try to debate the the kindness of Christ. He was kind. He was compassionate. The lame would walk. The blind would see. He would feed 5,000. He would forgive people the religious people wanted to bring justice towards. He would eat with people that the religious people thought he shouldn't hang out with. Jesus was just like that. He did all the things that we should be doing to make thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he modeled that for us. Now, when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about some mythological creature. You know that, right? If we didn't have the Bible, we would still know so much about Jesus by outside historical corroborating resources. The history of Josephus. Or Tacitus, the Roman historian. Now, it'd be tough to call Tacitus a Christian because he wasn't. He was just a powerful Roman authority, yet he writes somewhat about Jesus, the man Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the Bible, we'd still know that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth whose father was a carpenter. We would know that Jesus was crucified under the Romans by Pontius Pilate. We would know that he went about the land doing many miracles. And we would know, even according to Roman historians, that there was the belief that he had been risen from the dead. Without the Bible, you would still know those things. We're not talking about some uh, legend or myth like dragons or we're talking about A real man in real history, I don't know if you keep up with things like this, but a couple of weeks ago, there was another discovery. I love these discoveries. When we found a manuscript dated somewhere between 20 and 40 AD, and it's a Roman historian's travel throughout the land in which Jesus lived, and he records in his journal that he met a man named Jesus, who was from Nazareth, who brought a stillborn baby back to life. Now you say that's not in the Bible. Hey, not everything Jesus did is recorded in the Bible. Not everything. But it's amazing when we find some artifact like that and we read it and we're reminded, hey, Jesus is not just some fantasy or mythological character. He was in a real time and a real place, and he came for the purpose of showing you and I what we know to be real, that heaven and earth do collide, and his life is the way life ought to be. Now, here's the interesting thing about it Jesus is a good guy. And now we come to the end of his ministry of three and a half years of doing nothing but showing compassion and love to people and forgiveness to people other people thought, religious people thought shouldn't be forgiven. And now he's in the garden and they're going to kill him. Why, do you, why would you want to kill Jesus? I mean, I can think of a lot of people just in my human flesh that I think ought to be killed. All right. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, can, I got a line for you. What? Jesus? Jesus? Why do you kill a guy like Jesus who does nothing but show compassion? And quite frankly, folks, it's never changed. Because if Jesus is speaking the truth that he is from God, that means you and I have to change our lives and the way we're living. And we would rather kill Jesus than do that. And so we've been killing him a thousand times over every day ever since the crucifixion. And some of us do that every day in our hearts, even now. I would rather wipe Jesus off the face of the earth than have to try to change the way I'm living. So Jesus comes to the garden, and something interesting happens. The Bible says that he kneels down and he begins to pray, and he prays this. Now, this is fascinating. He says, Father, if it be your will, I pray that this cup would pass from me. In other words, if there's, a, if there's another way, God, that we can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish or will accomplish through me and my death, then I am, I am going to ask you. He prays a prayer. I'm going to ask you, Father, that you let this cup pass from me. I would rather do it another way. Please let this cup pass. Now, it all hinges on what the cup refers to. And there are so many Christians who have been in church all their lives and they've never heard this, never addressed this issue. What is the cup Jesus is referring to? So I'm going to put it here and then go back just for a second because most people say, well, of course Jesus is afraid because he's about to face Roman crucifixion. And he would have seen thousands of crucifixions. So sure, he's anxious. But wait a minute. There's a Greek word, and for those of you who are new, the Bible originally written in Greek and Aramaic. And that's why we know what we read today is what was originally written, because we have so many manuscripts that are copies in Greek and Aramaic that we can contrast and compare them with what was originally written by the number of manuscripts And when they compare and contrast, they are incredibly similar so that now we know what you read in your Bible today is what was originally written. It's a science, not an art. It's not the myth and legend people sometimes will tell you. You can trust what you read in the word of God. And so we read in the Bible, in the correlation and harmonization of the gospels, that Jesus kneels down and when he prays, the Greek word used to describe what he's feeling is a word that means to be surprised and perplexed. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. How could Jesus be surprised? He's the son of God. He shouldn't be surprised, but he is. In fact, he is so anxious that the Bible says he begins to sweat drops of blood, which again is not myth. It's an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. It's where the capillaries burst mingling sweat with blood. It's the effusion of blood into the sweat glands. It only happens in cases of extreme anxiety and people die from it. And Jesus is praying And he's so anxious, one of the gospel writers says that he's close to death. That the anxiety is so overwhelming, it's causing him to go to the line of death. Now why, when Jesus knows he's been called for this purpose, why would Jesus in the garden, asking his disciples to stay awake and pray with him, why on earth would Jesus come to a point where he was perplexed and surprised? And the answer is something was beginning to happen that caught him off guard. Now, stay with me. We know what's going to happen next. While Jesus is praying, the Sanhedrin thugs are going to come and arrest him. And they're going to put a blindfold on him. And they're going to smack him and strike him, first with open hand and then clenched fist. They're going to blindfold him because it's more difficult to take a beating like that if you can't see because you can't flinch. You can't soften the blow. And so all the way from the garden to a trial that violates every commonality of Jewish justice. Everything is violated in order to hurry and get this over with, to kill this man who showed so much compassion. They beat him with open hand, close fist. They blaspheme him. And they say, prophesy to us, who is it that struck you? They take him to a trial where they have false witnesses who have been arranged beforehand to lie and accuse Jesus of things. And then everybody wants to kill Jesus. But they know they can't because they don't have that power and authority, so they have to send him over to Pilate. Pilate has the authority. Pilate meets Jesus. Now understand what happens here. They beat him from the garden until the trial. And then from the trial to Pilate, they'll beat him again. These Sanhedrin thugs are notorious for just brutality. So Jesus is already weakening. They're giving him no food, no water. After you experience hematurgosis, after that experience, your skin is incredibly sensitive to touch for 24 to 48 hours. Again, this is not legend or myth. This is just medical fact. And so... Jesus makes his way to Pilate. Pilate sees Jesus and gets in a discussion with him about truth. And Jesus says, look, the person who's really looking for truth listens to me. If you're not really looking for truth, you'll ignore me. And Pilate says, what is truth? And walks away and doesn't wait for the answer. He doesn't want anything to do with Jesus because he's been warned by his wife. She had a dream where she was told, stay away from this man, Jesus. So he finds out Jesus is a Galilean. And that's Herod's jurisdiction, so he sends him over to Herod. When Herod hears that Jesus is coming, he's all excited because he wants Jesus to do some magic tricks. He's heard he can do these cool things. But Jesus won't oblige. And Jesus keeps his mouth closed like a lamb He was led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth because Jesus is not here to defend himself. He knows he's been called for such a time as this. He knows what he's about to experience, and he's not going to try to defeat it. And so... Herod has his men of war. Look it up and read it sometimes. Men of war. These are men, again, who are trained in brutality and torture. So that means Jesus is going to go without food and water for 24 to 48 hours. They're going to blindfold him. They're going to strike him with open hand, clenched fist. Then they're going to do it again on the way to Pilate. They're going to do it again on the way to Herod. When he gets to Herod, Herod's going to have his men torture Jesus. So already he's experienced so much. Herod says, all right, this guy's I don't know who he is, but there's no fault in him. He sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate says, look, this guy, there's, no, there's no, nothing wrong with this man. I, I can't find any fault in him. The Jewish people threatened Pilate, and they accused Jesus. He said he was a king. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, and even outside resources, Jesus never claimed to be a king. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm from another place. And yet they told Pilate, if you don't kill Jesus, we're going to tell Caesar that you're allowing treason and blasphemy in your own kingdom, and surely you'll be removed from your post, and Pilate panics. And so he washes his hand in a bowl, and he turns Jesus over to be crucified to a Roman cohort, which means it's Jesus and 600 soldiers. 600 Roman soldiers that don't know who Jesus is. They're going to treat him just like a common criminal, just like anybody else. In their minds, he's just somebody that rebelled against Rome. And their job is to make him pay. And so the Bible says that they carry him. And the first thing they would have done was strip him of all his clothes. And after they've stripped him of all his clothes to embarrass him, and no matter what you've seen on the movie, it is all his clothes. The Roman lictor then, who's in charge of the scourging, would take Jesus' left hand and he would tie it around the back of a, of a stump jutting out of the ground much like this. And with his arm tied and another hand tied to another thinner pole, the Roman lictor would take a whip something like this with seven strands and with metal balls at the end and designed to throw upon the front of Jesus so that he would cause internal bleeding. And so he would bruise and there would be deep gaping holes in the front of Jesus with this whip, and then he would tie Jesus' right hand around the pole and do the same thing on his back until the total front and the total back is all covered with deep gashing holes and internal bleeding and bruising. Again, this is not myth, folks. It's not something you just read in the Bible. We know a lot about Roman crucifixion from history. Seneca, a first century Stoic, says this, that scourging is halfway death, that most men died before they ever reached the cross. And he said that if you're facing a scourging or a crucifixion, now this is not somebody that's a Christian. This is just a historian. If you're facing scourging and crucifixion, it would be better to commit suicide the night before in jail than to go through this process. And then after he had done that with Jesus, he would untie his right hand again and put it onto another pole. And then he would take the whip, something like this. I couldn't find anything. I'm sorry, but it would have seven strands. And at the end of each strand, there would be a socket. And in that socket were placed sharp chips of bone. And the sharp chips of bone were designed then that as Jesus was facing this, to throw the whip by the Roman lictor and then the chips of bone would stick and extract flesh as it was pulled away from Jesus. And then they would put his other arm around and they would do the same thing on his back. Now remember who this is we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who loved people, who was compassionate for all people, loving, merciful, forgiving. Somebody that never would have harmed anyone. Someone who just gave love. And this is how he's treated. The Greek word for scourging is phragalao, which means open bowel. Because by the time a scourging was finished, you would see the veins and the sinews in the front and the back. Most men died before they ever reached the cross because of the loss of blood here. So medically speaking, Jesus, after the scourging, They took what is called a calamus. This is not the purple robe that Herod would have put on Jesus, mocking his royalty. This was a heavier wool robe that would be put on Jesus' back. Now you imagine it's so tender after hematidrosis. And then this heavy wool cloak is put around him and tied tight, just to irritate him that much more. And as he's losing all this blood... They put a crown of thorns. These are two to five inch quills that still grow in and around Jerusalem today. And they take those quills and they make a a cross. Sorry, a crown out of it. And they they take it and they put it on Jesus' head. And then they, uh, the historian tells us, they put a reed in Jesus' hand to symbolize. It's a weak imitation of the scepter that Caesar carried to festive occasions and to athletic events. And then they took the reed out of Jesus' hand with the crown of thorns and they slapped down the crown continuously until the thorns would go down into his skull. By this time, Jesus would be entering into what we call hypovolemic shock, hypo, uh, low volume, emic blood. He'd be losing a lot of blood. And so the heart would start to race to pump blood that's not there. The kidneys would stop producing urine. The, there would be fatigue, uh, incredible thirst. They're not feeding him. He doesn't have any water to drink. And then they put a 200-pound patabulum. This is the cross beam on which they crucify. And so they would tie Jesus with ropes to this. And of course, because he had been through all of this and survived, he didn't have the strength to carry it up to Golgotha. So the Bible tells us Simon of Cyrene, who was there during the Passover celebrations, the Roman soldier made Simon carry Jesus' cross because Jesus just couldn't do both walk and carry the cross. And the Romans were brilliant at this. They wanted to keep you alive as long as they could to show the world what happens when you rebel against Rome. And so when they arrive at Golgotha, then they lay Jesus down, put him, his arms. In this case, they didn't break bones, but usually they did. They pulled your arms as far as they could. And then they would nail you uh, to the cross beam. These are very similar to what we would, they would have used five to seven inches long tapered down to a sharp point and they wouldn't do it here folks they would do it here to crush the median nerve it was so painful and still to this day those who in exact capital punishment say that there is no greater punishment before or since than crucifixion because most capital punishment is rather quick and calculated but crucifixion was slow and painful and each person was different on how long they survived on the cross When they drove the nail through and it crushed the median nerve, it was so painful, we got a new word in English. It's called excruciating. And that word means out of the cross. There was no other word to describe what happened. It's the largest nerve coming out of the hand into the arm. They would nail both Jesus' wrists to the cross, and then they would drive it just above the ankle bone through both feet. The pain was so horrible that Jesus would have cried out. And then they take, after they've nailed him, to the horizontal and vertical pole, there would have been a six to eight foot hole dug in the ground, and then they would have hoisted Jesus with ropes, and then that cross would have dropped down. And when it drops down, it tears the flesh in both the wrist and the feet, and it ends up resting, that is the nails against the, uh, the dorsal bones. Jesus, while he was on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The reason Jesus knew exactly when he was going to die is because ultimately you die by asphyxiation on the cross. Because you're stretched out on the cross in an an inhaled position. That is, there's pressure. If you ever did this, you can inhale, but you can't exhale. So you're in an inhale position. And the only way you can get air out to get more air in is to take your feet and push yourself up to relieve the tension on the muscles. And then you can exhale and inhale and get your next breath. The reason Jesus knew precisely when he was going to die is you die when you lose the strength to push yourself up again. And so every time he pushes himself up, think about the rawness on his back and on his legs and the nails. And finally he knew it was over and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And to make sure he was dead, the Roman soldier said, takes a spear and drives it through the side of Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, the text tells us that when he did that, blood and water flow. Well, of course it did. It's called pericardial and plural effusion. It's when water surrounds the membrane of the heart, the lungs, and it does so upon death. So the Roman soldier was just trying to confirm whether Jesus was dead or not. So he drives the spear, blood and water flows. Jesus is dead. One of the Roman soldiers said, surely this must have been the son of God. The sun is dark and there's an earthquake, and the curtain, and the temple is torn in two, and Jesus dies, and he's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, why? Why? You say, well, now I know why Jesus was so anxious. No, you don't. And here's why, because there were many Christ followers after Jesus who refused to recant the name of Jesus who died horrible deaths. And they faced their deaths with incredible courage. Every one of the disciples, other than John, we just don't know about John, faced a martyrdom death and faced it with such great courage. This is, like, this is like a weapon of torture, doesn't it? I mean, it's beautiful, but it could hurt. And so Matthew, who wrote, who's one of the gospel writers, actually died in the city of Nataba in Ethiopia. He would not recant his faith in Christ, and they dragged him through the streets of the city, and then they beat him over the head relentlessly with one of these things until he died. And he died with courage, singing and praising God. As a matter of fact, Ignatius and Polycarp are historians of those days, and they will tell you that the secular world was incredibly drawn to the Christians because of the way they died. There was so, so much certainty in them that they were about to see Jesus that the secular world was compelled and many people came into the church because of the way the Christians face with great courage their deads. So why would they face death with courage but Jesus seemingly not? What's going on here with Jesus? What is it that surprised them? Now I want you to stay with me. I need your attention. I need you to focus. Because this is one of those times in a sermon when there are two kingdoms diametrically opposed to each other. And one is trying to rob you and me of truth and the other is trying to help us understand it so that we could be changed forever. You understand that? So those of you who are believers and have been for a while, I want you to keep your eyes open, otherwise I'll think you're asleep. But I expect you to be praying for these next 10 to 12 minutes. Here's what happened. It's all in the cup. There's a word used to describe when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, that is a word actually used by first century historians and philosophers, even Plato and Aristotle used it. It is the cup of justice. He says, let this cup of justice, the judicial cup, let it pass from me. What cup is he talking about? Jesus knows he's about to face the wrath of his own father. It's the pain is one thing, but the judicial cup is the cup of, listen, divine absence. Remember what he said on the cross? What's the one thing he said in complaint? Father, Father, why have you forsaken me?
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fiennes. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: If my dog dies, yes, I'm going to hurt, but I'll probably get over it. But if my mom dies, or my dad, or my son, or my daughter, the deeper, more intimate the relationship, the more searing the pain. Jesus has known the Father for eternity. And in their relationship, there is no division because there's perfect love, perfect harmony. There's no jealousy, envy, no strife. You can listen
0: to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts.